Hey guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding Powerlifting Podcast. We are officially on iTunes now, so definitely catch us on there. And the first interview that we had with Mike Isretel, who is with us today, is there. So you should definitely check that one out because it is really good. And James Hoffman's there too, and their cat, or James's cat, also made his appearance present. Uh, so today, I want to first just introduce who Mike is for anyone who doesn't know who Mike Isretel is. He is Professor of Exercise Science at Temple University in Philadelphia, has a PhD in, ex, uh, in Head Science Consultant for Nascent Periodization uh, that coaches highly successful powerlifters, weightlifters and bodybuilders, so he has a lot of knowledge that he can share for us guys who are interested in bodybuilding and powerlifting. He has competed in powerlifting at a very successful level is now a bodybuilder, pure bodybuilder, not quite because he is also a very good jiu-jitsu grappler. Is that pretty much right, Mike? Because I completely screwed this up the first time. We no, no. That was excellent. Uh, other than the fact that I was a good powerlifter, I think you got everything correct. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got some records, didn't you, Mike? Yeah, the Federation records. I think everyone had one back in the day. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't terrible, so I did okay. So, Mike actually came over to the UK not all too long ago with me and Mike Samuels and obviously came along with James Hoffman and did a fantastic seminar and I think the feedback we've got from that has been absolutely amazing so I definitely wanted to get Mike back um, and talk to him about how things have been going mm -hmm. and what he's been up to since kind of the seminar because I know there was talk about a bodybuilding show but I think you've been getting pretty damn jacked and beating on a lot of hippies from what I've seen with kind of Going on the Juggernaut YouTube channel, for those of you who don't know who that is, you need to check out Jug Juggernaut and Mike's kind of videos on there. So what have you been up to since kind of the seminar, Mike? What, what's been happening? Yeah, so since the seminar, I went through a pretty successful mass gaining phase and gained a little bit of muscle. And then I went through a maintenance phase, uh, broad month long. And now I'm actually dieting again. And if this diet leads to very good results, then I'll compete. If it doesn't lead to good results, I won't. Um, hopefully it will. So, um, yeah. So I'm dieting now, and I'm working on a ton of stuff all the time with Renaissance. I'm finishing up the editing for the Diet and Health book. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about Diet and Health uh, for our next book. And I think it's going to be a pretty good idea because when we wrote the performance book and it got out, and everyone—not everyone—a lot of people liked it. Then. Uh, some people kept asking, you know, so what, what about health? What about for health? And there's lots to say about that, and the priorities are similar but not identical. So I'm back, actually, in my, in my office right now, and uh, school starts next week, so I'm going to be intimidating a new class of uh, juniors and sophomores and uh, uni, and uh, all is well. And uh, Yeah, so let's chat. Awesome. Uh, so I think Mark is going to introduce kind of the topic and kind of it sounds quite like you've gone through a lot of these phases that we were about to talk about, so go for it, Mark. Yeah, Mike, so we thought the topic could be based around body composition changes for, more specifically, programming for body composition changes while in contest prep. So looking at things like how training was set up, um, introducing certain blocks into training, and then nutrition, when to take refeeds. Um. So programming for body composition changes, but starting off with kind of how would a bodybuilder approach a fat loss phase? Starting with training, Mike, how would you suggest a bodybuilder might want to go about that? Because I think for me personally, I've seen people being really obsessed with maybe trying to maintain strength and doing a lot of kind of intensity work. Whereas I know from the seminar and from your writing and kind of looking into the research, um, Eric Helms did a great paper about kind of bodybuilders going through contest prep. And certainly uh, you don't want to have too high an intensity from what I gather. Is that what is that the conclusion Eric Helms came to? Um, I wouldn't want to say for sure um, because I can't remember exactly. I remember that it was important to aim to maintain muscle mass so you'd be training for muscle essentially so that'd be more hypertrophic type training. Yeah, you know, I very much agree with that. So, you know, when we look at just general approaches, and obviously the, the right way to look at this 
is not ask specific questions until we can develop a general approach and then we can ask more particulars within that realm, right? So when we're looking at a question like how do we train during a fat loss phase, we have to get more particular and ask what it is we want out of that fat loss phase. Do we just want to lose fat? The answer is no. We also want to conserve muscle. Then we have to look at, okay, training for fat loss is easy. The training is uh, just has to have one variable. It has to burn as many calories as we can recover from and not interfere with other stuff. Fine. And, of course, the diet takes care of the rest. Fat loss is really simple. And what about muscle retention? Well, so muscle retention we have to think through, and this is where I think some folks have really stumbled, and I'd like to be very clear about this kind of stuff because, you know, I might not be correct about it, but it's certainly a good idea to put the terms out and think really clearly to see where we could potentially be disagreeing in, in some areas. So when people think, I need to conserve muscle, what a lot of them have done is looked at literature directly on the variables uh, in muscle conservation. And there is some literature on how to train to conserve muscle. And some of that literature is you need to train at least once a week hard because they've shown pretty unequivocally that if you train less than once a week, no matter how hard you train, you're really going to start to lose muscle if you're anything remotely not a beginner. And it's also been shown that if you can't train with high volumes, that's a really important point, if you cannot train with high volumes, your intensity being quite high is a really good way to preserve muscle mass during those times when you can't train with high volumes. Now that research has an external validity problem to our current application. Hypocaloric condition of bodybuilding contest prep, no, you can't train as much as you could when you were massing, but you can train plenty. Your recovery abilities are not completely in the, in the crapper. So we have to understand that when people take these studies of, well, high intensity is good for muscle conservation, these are not studies conducted on hypocaloric individuals who are trying to diet for a bodybuilding show. These are studies conducted on folks who they just want to see how little they can train people and they still maintain their muscle mass. And the key was that, look, if you lift heavy, even just once or twice a week, you're not going to lose muscle. And that's totally true. But who the fuck lifts once or twice a week? If you're doing that, you're not comparing, you're not competing in bodybuilding. You're barely working out. So, so if, for example, how do you apply this research properly? If you're on vacation and you're on a road trip with friends and, you know, it's one of those, like, uh, coming-of-age experiences where you're, like, and you're backpacking through Europe and getting yourself in all kinds of trouble, but you've also, in the back of your head, are a physique athlete, you may be able to do, just so, you, let's say you have a 10-day trip where you get signs all kinds of shenanigans, um, and you may end up in a, you know, five days into your trip, you may end up in, you know, a city in Hungary or something like that, and, you know, you've been eating okay, but you haven't been training for five days. What do you do? The answer is, smash it with high intensity and then after you get back home five days later you may very well have lost no muscle. Now you're not in a hypocaloric condition at that time and you're certainly not optimizing anything but you know that if you come into the gym and just kind of pump up a little do pump workout that doesn't work for conserving muscle nearly as well as a heavy workout in that context. In a eucaloric context of you are artificially delimiting how much volume you can do. That's fine, and there's very good application for that, as just described. However, when we're dieting down for a competition, we can train a lot. Now, less than in a massing phase, but, but quite a lot. And in addition to that, you know, uh, what are, is the critical variable? What's the biggest variable in determining our muscle growth? What's the biggest variable that pushes muscle growth? Well, it's volume, right? So when we choose a training method, we had better not choose one that screws over our volume in favor of intensity. So automatically we can reject the idea that it's a good idea to do heavy singles and triples or maybe even heavy fives on a contest prep because that's going to generate so much fatigue for the little volume that it exerts. The overall uh, hypertrophic benefit is, is quite small. So we definitely don't want to train that heavy. Now, now so the real debate is do we want to use like sets of 6 to 10 reps or sets of 10 to 15 reps on average. So, but, but that's, remember, it's a much, much different debate now and much, much, much less particular. Another sort of theoretical consideration we have to make is the following. 
when we are trying to preserve as much muscle as possible, most folks, maybe not most, some, have seen this from only one side of the two-sided equation of muscle preservation. They said, what is the training that is the most anti-catabolic? What is the training that prevents the most muscle loss? Well, high-intensity training done intermittently, and that's very clear. But that's only one side of the equation. The other side is what kind of training boosts anabolism the most, boosts muscle growth, not just prevents loss. Well, high-volume training does that best, and of course it does uh, the you know anti-catabolic anti stuff great. It just if you can't do any volume, you've got to do high intensity. But if you can do relatively high volume, there are a range of intensities that are very effective so long as they're above a certain minimum, probably above 60% 1RM on average. Then they support anti-catabolism and anabolism quite well. And this is where we start to kind of see some confusion, which I don't think is warranted. People say, well, hold on, why are we trying to stimulate anabolism when we don't have the raw materials for muscle growth? Well, we have raw materials that come in for whatever. If you train for anabolism, yes, anabolism will be somewhat decreased because of the signaling of not enough food and too much you know, cardio, etc., and high fatigue during a pre-contest, but it'll still be there a little bit. When you lose muscle throughout the day, just being in a hypocaloric state, yes, being anti-catabolic is good to prevent that volume of muscle loss. So if you didn't do anything to prevent muscle loss, you might lose this much. But if you do as much as you can, you might only lose this much. That's doing no anabolic work whatsoever. Now, if we stack this much anabolic work on that, yeah, during a mass phase, it would be this much anabolic work. But now all we can get is this. We got this much anabolic work and this much catabolism, right? So now we grow this much muscle, but we lose this much muscle. So when, where do we end up on the net balance? Flat, which is great, which means we're keep keeping all of our muscle. So my idea is that you have to train for hypertrophy to try to grow muscle when you are dying. You will not be able to grow much muscle, but you'll get lean and save all your muscle. If you only try to spare muscle when you're dieting, you're missing part of that equation. It's not a big part, but it's an important part to get the best outcomes possible. I don't like it when people hunker down in their diet, do sets of maybe six to eight reps, and say, I'm just trying to keep muscle. I don't want to make any progress. Well, good luck, because that's not going to keep you your muscle in a hypocaloric state. I'm speaking from this as my reading of the literature, and as well as many years of painful experience where I tried that exact approach. I would fucking lose muscle all the time. <laughs> you know, and, and people say, well, you know, I want to try to keep my strength. You a power lifter? Uh, because then you got to keep your strength. But we're uh, a bodybuilder. you got to try to keep your muscle. You have to derive the logical elements that would be more likely to bring you the most muscle or keep the most muscle, which is an attempt to grow that is canceled out by your hypocaloric state and results in a net zero. But no attempt to grow, you just reduce your catabolism. You'll never reduce it all the way, and you'll still lose quite a bit of muscle. So I think that trying to train with as high of volumes as possible, we have to keep in mind they're going to be lower than they will in a hypercaloric phase or a eucaloric phase, but they're still going to be pretty decent. And now we have to think of what kind of training methods are the most beneficial for hypertrophy. Well, one is high volume, and two, we know that there is a direct relationship between intensity and hypertrophy, that on average, the higher the intensity of that volume, the more muscle growth you get. That's been pretty clear. So the answer, how do you train on a massing phase versus a cutting phase, fundamentally, for the most meat and potatoes of the cutting phase, you train the same. On average, most people, 8 to 12 reps. Now, of course, like Brad Schoenfeld has said many times, there will be times or exercises or days in your training where you go much heavier than that. There will be times or exercises or days where you go much lighter than that. But the mean, the average, should be about 8 to 12 reps. Why? Because that seems to give us the best trade-off of simultaneously high volumes and the higher intensities so that we can maximize how much, how powerful our volume is. It gives us the most effective volume, right? Because there's, you know, it, 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 even more effective volume can be derived from doing sets of three per volume. You go like crazy from sets of three, but you'll fatigue so fast you won't be able to build up the kind of volumes week after week that let you do that. So it's very effective volume, but it's not enough effective volume. On the other hand, you could do sets of 25 until you're blue in the face. That's a shitload of volume. You can recover from all that, no problem. You can recover from a ton of volume, but that volume is really diluted. There's not much hypertrophic signaling there because it's not much tension being developed. So I think the way to train for a cutting phase, fundamentally, outside of some minor details here and there, and outside of the end of a cutting phase in which we have some tricks we can use, I think it's like very much like a massing phase. 
you just do your best. And another thing I'd like to say is people keep trying to figure out ways to, to screw over physics and chemistry and they just never work. So they say, well, but you know, I don't have as much energy on a cutting phase. So how do I fix that? You don't fucking fix that. It just sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's it, you know? And, and, and this has nothing to do, and this it applies with, to drugs uh, just as much as it applies to drug-free. So people say, well, drug guys, they'll start taking like trend when they cut and they get infinite energy and recovery. Next question, why don't you take trend when you mass? You'll be huge. Oh, yeah, fuck, I didn't think of that. So you can take drugs at any time of the year. There's Most guys like to take them closer to cutting because most guys you know, are interested in conserving their muscle mass for the show because that's when it's important that you look good. Nobody really cares if you look amazing at the end of massing. But you can take that too far. You take almost all of your drugs during cutting. You look great. But during massing, you take so few that you never really improve year after year, right? So you never really do build much muscle. Because even with all the drugs in the world, you're not going to build a whole lot of muscle during cutting, especially if you're cutting in the not <clears throat> deep enough. So situations until stimulate growth, the result will be we just won't get any smaller. We wish we could train more, but we can't because the calories aren't coming in and there's nothing to replace that. And that's where I'm coming from as far as a perspective uh, on, on that whole controversy where, you know, do you think it's a good idea to just train to keep your strength? Uh, no, I, I don't. I think it's a good idea to train just for the mass and you just get shitty results, but the results will be you don't lose any muscle. As in, if you try to train for strength, here's, here's let me beat that horse to death really quick. If you say, okay, I really want to keep my strength, strength, and in the case general strength, anywhere from, you know, four to eight reps, let's say, ability, you end up training more in that six rep range, for example. Per unit of volume, that is very fatiguing, much more so than eight to 12 reps. That means your maximum recoverable volume starts to shrink. If you continue to try to do as many sets of six as you would have, you know, uh, total volume of eights, you'll just overreach and that'll be that. So you have to shrink your volume down. Now your net hypertrophic effect is lower and you're going to lose more muscle. I don't even know if you'll keep your strength then. It's kind of a lose-lose because now you're losing muscle and the underlying basis of strength is muscle. So your neurological abilities may very well be conserved, but now they're working with less and less and less muscle every week and eventually you'll get weaker. That's happened to me like a shitload of times. I can't even you know, tell you how many times that's happened. It really sucks. Um, so by, by, attempting, uh, it, by attempting to save your strength, you end up doing, you know, the, the worst possible thing. It's like it's almost like you have this, like, gold jar that you're trying to conserve, and you know that's and that's your your muscle or your strength, and you've got these enemies that are stabbing you in the back, and and they they kill you, right? And then they take the gold jar, so you lose that one by trying to conserve it. <laughs> but if you leave it off to the side, you can fight the enemies. They still kill you, but then they're dead too. Gold jar is still safe, right? So instead of turning around and saying, "I'm just going to conserve muscle," right, and grab your gold jar is a very Jewish thing for me to say, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> <Out there. laughs> right? It makes sense. To me. So so we we are turn around and fight the enemies of muscle loss, we're going to lose that battle, but we're going to kill them too, and then the gold jar, our, our, our muscle, is, is remaining. Um, so maybe that's a shitty analogy, but, but there it is. So, um, and, and as far as just general principles of, of arranging your diet and your cardio and your training, you have a, a certain maximum recoverable volume on a, a mass phase. It looks like this on a a maintenance phase because you get less food and it looks like this on a cutting phase because you get less food. It's not a huge difference, not like this or like that, but it's a small drop. On a cutting phase, your amount of training that you can do is actually going to look even a little bit less than that because you have to make room in the MRV for cardio because uh, cardio is uh, properly done, has a very small recovery cost but a very big calorie expenditure. Right? That's the reason people do cardio and, and the stupidity of people recommending high-intensity cardio for bodybuilders is that if you do high-intensity cardio, you don't burn that many more calories, but you beat yourself up a lot more. It's a better workout if you want to be fit. If you don't want to be fit, if you just want fat loss, you've got to train as much as possible to keep hypertrophic uh, stimuli pushed along, and on top of that, you have to add uh, some recovery window to do plenty of cardio. And there's a balance there. There's no def definite equation, but you got to leave some room for cardio. And then you just do your best after that. I cool. absolutely love it uh, because I can relate highly to doing it the wrong way because for my first contest prep, I was training for strength for quite a long period of time, and at the beginning, 
great. I was gaining strength because I wasn't been dieting for very long. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, I lost so much strength. My workouts were awful. I was doing hit training, which was horrible. And yeah, it it's to yeah. have met you and to have learned these different ways and approaching the literature and interpreting it and maybe what I probably argue as well as yourself a better way has really helped me with my clients. And now when I go into a contest prep, I feel much more like I'm going to get a much better result and feel a lot better going into it and maintain more muscle mass because I definitely know I lost muscle mass because of some of those approaches that I was taking. Yeah. I think a lot of people <laughs> get obsessed with trying to maintain strength within kind of that five and below rep range when maybe they should be made looking at strength in the five plus <clears throat> rep range. And maybe not even yeah. strength at all as well. Like you said, it's volume, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, that's a fantastic insight. And I think people can take a lot away from that. Yeah, you know, I, I just like to say something on that note. How did we get, you know, you, you're basically, what you described as your previous plan was like the PubMed Warrior's Guide to Getting in Shape. Like, I'm just going to do fucking high-intensity interval training because that's good and everyone says it's good and all the scientists say it's great and it's so much better than incline walking or something like that. Nobody even debates it anymore. And, of course, we got to train with low reps to preserve strength because that's how you preserve muscle because every joke science says so. And we get in the situation that the only people doing that are people who are not jacked and not lean and they just kind of sort of have a scientific error about them, whereas almost all of the bodybuilders who are jacked and lean are doing lots of incline walking on the treadmill and other boring low-intensity cardio, and they are doing lots of high-volume training where volume is king, and they're getting the results. Now, is this uh, saying something that there's wrong with science? Absolutely not, but there is something wrong with taking studies with a very limited external validity and applying them where they don't belong, and there's also a bit of a fallacy there when we think that people in the trenches who have been doing things for years and years have no wisdom to offer us. Now, do they do some stupid shit? Fuck yeah, they do. Some bro shit makes no damn, you can eat all the glutamine in the world, nothing's gonna happen. There are definite mistakes. But anything that pretty much every single bodybuilder does that's any good, you can't just write off as stupid. You gotta say maybe maybe there's something to that. Now we're developing a research and theoretical understanding that's actually saying, wow, they were doing a lot of the right stuff. They were doing all the right stuff, but a lot of the right stuff they were doing. Man, it feels really stupid. If, you know, now the people that are doing high intensity were doing high intensity interval training back in 2008 or whatever, right? When it was high time to do that, now they're coming back and saying, "Oh man, I fucking beat up my joints and like my my." If they were speaking in our language, they'd say, "You know, my MRV had to go down for weights because like I would come to try to train legs and my shit was my knees and ankles are beat up from treadmill running." And it's like, well, now now do you see why 280 pound bodybuilders don't do anything except for the stairmaster and incline walking at a slow pace? We would just destroy them. So, so it's one of those situations where we have to understand that wisdom comes from a variety of sources, and we always have to be skeptical of everywhere it comes from. In science, you don't have to be skeptical of the conclusions of studies, not much because science is the surest path to the truth, but you have to be real sharp on external validity and how you're applying what you're applying, because unless you're talking about training the best untrained undergrads of all time, then most science is going to be having very big problems with external validity. That's where most exercise phys research is done. I have done exercise phys research. I've put up posters recruiting untrained undergraduates. and on the other hand, if you think that gigantic bodybuilders who've been doing some things for years are always right and just infallible because they're big, you're going to do a lot of stupid shit. <laughs> However, if you think that they have nothing to offer and they just got big by accident or people say, like, drugs, I just want to, anyone, anytime anyone says, like, well, it's because of drugs, I'm like, okay, you fucking 65 kilo motherfucker, I'm going to lay out a whole cycle of vials and needles for you. You come back in four months, you let me know how big you get. And the answer is, nah, is not impressive. Oh, oops, you weren't Kai Green before you started drugs. Well, that sucks. And I guess you didn't train for eight hours a week. You just trained for three. You know, you could have done everything. You could have intermittent fasted high-intensity interval training and minimal training yourself until Ronnie Coleman, apparently, if you just had enough drugs. So, you know, people that, that take that <laughs> to the extreme is, is kind of absurd. 
everyone's got stuff to teach and you can never trade away your skepticism. You can't trade away your skepticism for interpreting studies. You can't trade away your skepticism for interpreting what uh, some, some of the, or most of the top guys are doing. Yeah, and rant. <laughs> Sorry, that took long. I love awesome. that. Go ahead, Mark. No, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, kind of already answered the first question I was going to ask regarding um, different uh, variety within training blocks for contest prep. So, but I guess you've already answered that and it would be more looking at the typical high-volume uh, high rep ranges, um, typical bodybuilding rep ranges. Um, I was going to ask whether there would be or whether there would ever be a, a call for variety in a block, so maybe running a kind of strength-based block and then a more a hypertrophy-based block. Um, but I guess going by what you've just said, yeah, it would kind of keep the training much the same all the way through prep uh, in that kind of higher rep range. Do you mean do you mean during the hypocaloric diet or during other phases of prep? During the the dieting phase of prep. During the dieting phase, I would say most of your training needs to be on average between eight and twelve. Now, yeah. what I mean by that is it's muscle group dependent, it's individual dependent, and we're also trying to target a variety of fiber types probably. So what you want to do is uh, probably use a variety of rep ranges. So maybe what you can do is on a typical leg day, you can come in and even do sets of six for squats. Then when you're done with sets of six for squats, you can do sets of 10, same squats, just sets of 10. And then for your last quad movement of that day, you could get on the leg press and do sets of 15 where you only you know, rest for two minutes between or one minute between sets and get a really crazy burn and, and hit probably more slow twitch fiber stuff. So uh, now the average of that is like, nope, sets of 8 to 12. But there's quite a bit of variation in there. You just yeah. don't want to bias it too much in one direction or the other. If you piss away all your energy doing sets of six, well, you didn't have enough time to for higher sets, etc. And, and, and I think it, it may even be fine to do all of your sets at 10. It, that may be similar uh, in effect to transitioning between um, within one workout or within one week various rep ranges, but, but I'm not sure about that. I don't think anyone else is either. Um, that being said, there is one point in contest prep where a different kind of training is a good idea. So metabolite training training with high volumes but also usually short rest breaks or supersets or something like that where you build up a lot of lactate or a lot of metabolites, you can use much lighter weights and with sheer willpower you can get pretty good growth or in this case anti-muscle loss, right? Now the thing about metabolite training is it tends to be very fatiguing and it probably is unsustainable in the sense that it only really works when you're not used to it and it probably takes you about a mesocycle or a month or so to get used to it. After you get used to it, you don't really get the burn anymore. You don't really get much of soreness anymore. And it doesn't seem to last for long. So in my experience, it's a trick that only works once every three or four mesocycles. Good news is it's almost perfectly tailored for the last mesocycle of contest prep. So before you take your last week and reduce training volume and fill up on carbs, you could do a, a mesocycle of metabolites where you don't need to be strong anymore to lift heavy weights. You don't even need to have enough glycogen because you don't anyway to do good sets of 10. You just need to suffer. So you take relatively light, light loads. So you do your basic high volume training, still the meat potatoes, but maybe one or two exercises per muscle group per training session, you take and you do a very, very short rest breaks uh, and you use lighter weights or you do drop sets and you get a crazy pump and a crazy burn that is not a sustainable way to train but it's a really cool thing to throw in the mix when you pretty much aren't capable of pre presenting an overload in any other way because you're so depleted and that kind of that kind of training you don't need much energy for it you know if you just do enough of those sets and you go to basically to muscular failure or close you will get a hypertrophic stimulus the thing is it doesn't last but for the last month, who gives a shit if it lasts or not? You're done with the show after that. And you can it also is a very high calorie demand training. Breathe very heavily. It's really hard. And that's great because it helps you burn more fat in the sense that it creates a bigger calorie deficit. Now it doesn't like etch striations into your muscle or anything stupid like that. But it just allows you to present another good stimulus when everything else has kind of run its course. Again, 
competitive bodybuilders have been doing this since the 70s and 80s. Did they know why they were doing it? Fuck no. They said shit like, oh, it etches in the detail. Fuck up out of here. You got a fucking hammer and chisel on your muscles and etching shit. But, <laughs> but they were correct in the fact that it worked. And, you know, a lot of times, and, um, you know, one, uh, a guy I'm really fond of, I don't know, he's, he's old school, so you, you don't, can't really follow him. He doesn't have social media presence. He's an economist named Thomas Sowell. And he's articulated versus inarticulated types of knowledge. And you can explain why you do them, and they work. Inarticulated knowledge is things that people do. They, they don't know why they do them, but they know they work. Or they may have an explanation that's wrong, but it still works. So there's a lot of that kind of inarticulated knowledge in bodybuilding or unarticulated knowledge that uh, people do it, and it works. And they can have any reason or no reason at all to do it, but the fact is it does work. And only now are we finding out that it works. So, you know, when, you know, us nerds would want to ask bodybuilders 10 years ago or even now, hey, why do you do that? And they'd be like, because my coach said so. That's a stupid reason to do something unless it works every single time. <laughs> and then maybe a better answer would be, you know, I'm not really sure, but I see that everyone does it, and I see that people who don't do it don't do so well, and I, in my own training, feel like it retains muscle. <laughs> and that's okay. You don't, if you can't justify something, as a coach, you had better be able to justify everything. As an athlete, sometimes stuff just works, and you got to run with it. And, and now we're learning that, oh, no, metabolites. You know, it's, it's really funny. Uh, really quick aside, very related. I literally have exercise phys textbooks from 10 years ago when I went to undergrad. Yeah, that's when I went to undergrad, 10, 12 years ago. And they were kind of ridiculing the idea of the muscle pump. Okay, so the muscle pump. They said, bodybuilders think the muscle pump is critical for growth, but scientists know it's just blood. It's not muscle, and it has nothing to do with growth. I hope those people are fucking eating shit right now. <laughs> right? They, I mean, they made that up. They made up the fact that it has nothing to do with growth. What they should have said is, you know, bodybuilders value the muscle pump, and we're just not sure if it's related to growth yet. That's That was the reality. Now... There's like 10 studies showing like, yeah, first of all, cell volumization is an independent trigger for hypertrophy. Second of all, the very metabolites and high volume training that cause a pump also cause hypertrophy, probably in a related manner. So yeah, if something gets you really pumped, it's probably causing you hypertrophy. So again, external validity. We got to only conclude what we can conclude. A lot of the stuff, and I think, you know, was it um, uh, Eric Helms had a quote like, uh, science is the basis of your practice or your art. It's not or your basis of your practice. It's not your practice. And Brad Schoenfeld said some very similar things. Mm -hmm. You got to use science for what it knows, and what it knows, it knows really well. But if science doesn't know, you you got to do your best guess with logic and stuff like that. And I'm going to butcher his name. Menno Henselman's Henselman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's got like an extra S at the end. It's like a plural last name. I have no idea what to make of that. So. Um, Henselman would have been great, but the extra S screws me over. So, you know, he's got uh, his, his, what is a philosophy like Bayesian bodybuilding, right? And it's basically analogous to logical bodybuilding. Like, he, he, I remember him debating once with someone, and he's like, you're taking a scientific approach, I'm taking the Bayesian approach. What he meant by that was, yes, it's good to know what science says, but after science can't reach any further, we still need answers. And yeah, in 20 to 30 years, we'll have them from science, but i got to fucking compete in a show next month. <laughs> I can't wait that long. So we have to use logic. And of course, science, the discoveries of science, are the basic building blocks of that logic. But you got to do better than just science itself. you got to be able to reason. Okay, now that what we know about science and what I know from personal experience, what's the logical view on what I probably should do? And I do a bunch of that kind of stuff. And when people ask me, why do you do that? There's no studies. I say, hey, that's my best guess. And if you don't have any best guesses, and if you just like PubMed a lot, then you're probably not jacked and lean. You're probably not trying to get jacked. I mean, you're trying to win arguments on Facebook. You can say, well, there's no, there's no, no way to justify that. And I said, that's fine. I, I'm comfortable with that, but I have to make a guess because I'm out here in the field. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, that's it. Yeah, you definitely have to take kind of. If you haven't got personal experience, then sure, go with the science, but. Mm -hmm. That personal experience is very valuable for every single individual because we are all different. Although there's, like you definitely know, there's the overarching principles that definitely make a lot of sense. And I think I even posted a Facebook uh, post recently where you were basically, yeah, the overarching principles apply really greatly to a lot of people. The particulars, not so much. Yeah, I That's remember that. Have to really think about, yeah, individualization. And I just wanted to talk about. 
kind of, it sounded very much like during a contest prep, it kind of makes sense to maybe transition from maybe the lower end of the spectrum of what you consider the hypertrophy rep range, maybe the six to tens, then move into focusing more on the eight, uh, the 10 to 12s, and then you add on those metabolites at the end because that's kind of the easier volume in terms of intensity um, to get on with. And something I did want to touch on was I've definitely heard blood flow restriction training quoted as free volume, which I find difficult to comprehend when we're talking about your maximal recoverable volume, which is a limited thing, and you can't get around the fact that you do have a limited pool of resources. I just wondered what your thoughts on call, calling something free volume. Yeah, so from what I understand, that was a very erroneous conclusion. Uh, and that conclusion was based on what I believe to be uh, one or two metrics uh, typically associated with um, exercise-induced muscle damage that were not seen with uh, occlusion training. The problem is there's about 50 or so uh, metrics of muscle damage and um, a bunch of them are certainly elevated with occlusion training and uh, because in one particular study one of those or two of those were absent it was concluded based on that study that this form of training is not fatiguing. Now, let me put, put you in this perspective. First of all, having myself done occlusion training it is wildly disruptive to homeostasis. The kind of DOMS you get from occlusion training, good luck going anywhere after that, okay? Because uh, like, you just fall off the leg press and you just don't move for a very long time. And then <laughs> 24 hours later, you can't sit down, you can't stand up, you can't lay around, I can't lay down face down on my bed because my quads hurt too much. So um, the fact that it's not disruptive is, is <clears throat> just is wildly inaccurate. And in the, let's look at what else would have to be the case if that was if it's free volume if it really is free you should do all of your training with occlusion training because then you can train infinitely and you could get unbelievable results that's nonsense it's pure nonsense so if it really you know the only limiting factor big limiting factor on how much you can train is that training not only presents an overload and a benefit but also gives you fatigue so you can't do 80 sets of squats because you're going to get so much damage and fatigue that you're going to die instead of grow and before you die you just won't grow and all the stuff will go to recovery instead of to make you grow um, it's like double your MRV at that point or something uh, if Occlusion training is really free volume. You could do one. You could, hey, look, man, fucking, maybe Rich Piana is right. What am I saying? <laughs> I take back everything I said. Rich Piana is right. Through occlusion training, you finally can arm workout, and you'll just be jacked forever. <laughs> yeah, and then you can, you can have eyeliner on all the time, or it's tattooed on. I don't even know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, Rich Piana is a very interesting looking guy. Uh, that's all I have to say about that. I'm going to keep this politically correct. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, no. The, my my thoughts on that are just like you know, I, just, I that's the nonsensical. It's not mm -hmm. based on any more than about a study or so, and it's you know. I think it's a, a good example of where you might look at the science, or maybe they're even looking at the entirety of the science, which is an mm -hmm. important aspect in its own. But then trying it out yourself, and I've tried it, and yeah, it really screws you up, and you. And after a while, I found it just, it didn't produce the same effects. So, like, I'd even found it with high rep training. After a while, it just, you don't get anything from it. It just kind of dissipates. So I definitely agree from trying it as well that the kind of impact dissipates. Uh, something I did want to talk about and what we were asked about was um, in terms of, because we're talking about maximal recoverable volume, and obviously we've said it's less during a dieting phase, what about deloads and deload frequency? Because people are like, oh, I can't deload during a dieting phase because I'm going to lose muscle. Surely then I also need to lower my calories because I'm burning less energy. And people get really kind of stressed about these periods when I think you're going to explain it in a very, very good way that's going to get people to understand how important it's not like, to take deloads and then also not to reduce your calories. You know, uh, I, Steve, I disagree with you. I think deloading is stupid. It's really for the weak. You know, and I don't mean weak in body, I mean weak in spirit. You gotta fucking grow up. And I didn't say grow up, I said grow up with a B. Never deload. Get a lot of warrior tattoos and you'll be fine. Um so no, yeah, it's um deloading on a cut is a gigantic psychological challenge. Because you've got this if especially if you're contest prepping, you've got the show coming up in months and it's getting closer and closer and closer 
and it is uh, you're going to have to be basically naked in front of everyone. And what you're doing for a whole week or five days is you are eating a eucaloric diet or an isocaloric diet. You're not losing any weight because you're eating, um, you're training less and you're still eating plenty of carbohydrate. You might even be gaining weight by glycogen accretion. And um, what the fuck? What the fuck's going on? And then you look at yourself in the mirror. You're, you're like, did I work out hard today? No, I didn't work out hard at all. But damn it! I just want to work out. I got this phase coming up. I'm gonna make a really good really stupid. So, my um, roommate James Hoffman has been playing, and I've been watching him play a lot of this game. I just like four. This is from uh, what's it called? Uh, something of Mordor. Anyway, you guys know Lord of the Rings, right? Mm. Okay. Was everyone in there is British? You better know Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you know. Basically, it's like you're running away from the encroaching armies of Mordor, right? And a deload is you stopping, setting up camp, lighting a fire, hunting some food, eating some food, sleeping for a day, while the fucking army keeps getting closer. Now, somebody who's not familiar with running away from the armies of Mordor, as I, of course, am, notice I've got my, uh, what is it, what, what am I, uh, Dwarf, dwarf. I feel like the, the dwarves are basically Jews anyway. If that's neither here nor there. So, uh, so you know, how do you really outrun the mortal armies? Endurance, right? If you freak out and think they're always on our tail, they're always on our tail, they're always on our tail, and you never take breaks, then you're going to run yourself into the ground. You're going to get so fatigued, you're going to fall off your horse. Horse is going to run away, and you're going to be wake up in a stream, and then there's going to be like a fucking orc on top of you, right? So you have to take calculated slowdowns recovery periods so that the army of Mordor never catches you because you're running away too fast, right? Same idea with contest prep is, yes, it sucks that deloads exist, but they're the only things that are going to keep you not super catabolic. They're only things, by taking a little break from fat loss, that are going to keep your fat loss going, and they're the only things that make sure that you're not so fatigued that you start getting hurt or start losing a shitload of muscle just because your accumulated fatigue is way too high. One of the most predictable effects of accumulated fatigue is a rise in the activity of catabolic, or, uh, catabolic intracellular mechanisms, AMP kinase and such, and a fall, a slow fall, in the anabolic mechanisms, mTOR and things like that. So if you have this much catabolic activity, and this much anabolic activity. What the hell do you think is going to happen after a while? You're just going to be losing muscle. How do you tell it's happening ecologically? I'm sure you guys have been here before. I sure have when I was doing stupid stuff. You're like eight weeks in to a cut and you haven't deloaded and you're training and you're completely flat. Like you don't even get pumps anymore. You guys have been through that where you're just like, I, 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 I thought I worked out, but I don't think anything happened. And, and, and it's funny because you don't even get sore and you feel like you can come back the next day. That's not a good sign. That means you did not disrupt homeostasis. You were not sufficiently strong enough to disrupt homeostasis anymore. So uh, it's a bad deal. Only deloads every four to six weeks or whatever for a week or so at a time. That is how you make sure that your cut is smooth, 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 and it's smooth sailing on the way. They literally build sustainability into program. Now, if you're really freaking out about this, usually you diet for 14 weeks and you would need three deloads in there. Don't do that. Diet for 17 weeks, start early, and then you have the deloads and it's still the same total amount of dieting. What we're not saying is that you take your standard 16-week diet and just put a shitload of deloads in there, making it only that you're dieting for 12 weeks in reality. That's not a good idea. Diet for longer so you can slowly whittle down and so you can deload when needed. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to be screwing yourself over. And, and if you want to have higher intensities of training and not deload, I mean, here's the funny thing. People who say don't deload on a cut, you just ask them a real simple question. Do you think fatigue accumulates more on an isocaloric or hypercaloric diet or on a hypocaloric diet? And they go, fatigue. Calories fight fatigue, so there's more fatigue on a hypocaloric diet. You go, mm -hmm. And you still don't think we should deload during a diet. They're like, yeah, no, wait, yes, fuck, I don't know, because they don't know. Right? It's, it's backwards. Exactly when, you know, if someone said, I don't deload on a mass phase, I could kind of see that. You know what I mean? Like, it's a bad idea still, but I could be like, yeah, you eat enough, man, you just kind of heal. But on a cut, Jesus, that's, that's exactly when you need to deload. So does it suck mentally? Yes, but how about this? It Take that. So, so what is the real reality psychologically here? You want to cut. You want it to be painful. You want to have very little food. You want to train hard. You want to throw yourself into the fire because you want to be the best. Take that craziness 
and let it build up on you during the deload until you're completely insane at the end of the deload. <laughs> that, that insanity slowly drains. As you guys who have prepared for shows or done your own cuts on your own time know, at the end of a proper bodybuilding cut, you don't give a fuck about being lean anymore. You don't care. I don't care about lifting. I don't care about eating. I want Snickers bars, Reese's. Okay, I I, I want to. What is you guys? You guys have the store in London, Sainsbury. You guys know Sainsbury? Oh yeah, Sainsbury. Oh yeah. And just fucking just drop me off in a Sainsbury so the police can remove me when I'm just eating the candy section, right? <laughs> like that's all I want. <laughs> okay, that kind of psychological state, you know, uh, can happen in the middle of a diet, and then and then what? You give up hope and you stop dieting, and that's how people end up cheating on a diet, right? They're like, I don't fucking care. I don't care anymore. I don't want to diet. Well. If that's the problem, do this. If you deload periodically, during the deload, your care is going to build up a ton, and then during the accumulation phase, it's going to whittle, 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 until you need a deload even psychologically. You're like, oh my god, thank god I don't have to train hard today, and thank god I can eat a little bit more. Just It's really the same amount right, as you used to eat, but there's not as much training there, so you you know there's, you don't burn it all away, and it feels like more food. Uh, and then you during the deload, your psychology gets built up, and then it gets drained away. So it makes sense not only from a physiological level, but from a psychological level as well. It takes it takes a but yeah but but it takes a maturity it takes maturity and it takes a foresight because it's not what you want to do yeah. um, but if you do shit shit you want to do just fucking do maxes all day and post them <laughs> on Instagram <clears throat> so that's what I do Mike you you talk about implementing deloads into your training um, and even specifically in like contest prep when we're talking about so we're in a calorie deficit and we're dieting for the show would there be a standard time that you would implement deloads at four or six weeks and would you even look to bring them in more frequently as the diet progressed I mean I guess everyone's dieting periods different some people diet for like you said 14 weeks some people might be dying for 24 weeks um, in a longer dieting period, would you ever consider deloading more often? Um, would that be something that, that you would recommend? Or is there, a set, is, is there a set, like, general kind of four week, every four or five weeks, six weeks is good enough? I'm not sure. I actually am not sure. Um, I don't have the experience in experimenting with that myself or with clients nor do I have the research backing to tell you if that's the case. It certainly might be the case. Yeah. But um, as the, I'll tell you what, psychologically it'll be really tough as the show gets closer because yeah. then you really want to make sure you sharpen up. You know, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you why it's probably not necessary. There is an understanding that you can carry a lot of fatigue into a bodybuilding show. Why? Because after that, you get a week off of training or light training, even actually the week before four is really easy yeah. and the week after you get infinity food you'll heal from anything so you're supposed to have unsustainably high fatigue coming into the week before a bodybuilding show so how do you get that unsustainable high fatigue well probably by diluting it only every four to six weeks when you may be accumulating so much fatigue you could benefit from every two to three weeks so I would say that the only time in which keeping fatigue low might need you to deload more often is the very last month before the show but at that point you don't need to reduce fatigue much because it's almost over anyway does that make sense and at that point the question of do I want to reduce fatigue more or do I want to get just a little leaner I think that just a little leaner probably wins out but I'm not sure about that so my best guess would be probably four or six weeks on average at least is a good start and you know what I think there's so few people deload during contest prep that it's good for us to just start getting people to start deloading at all, and then we can tackle the technicalities later when more people start doing it. Um, so, so th those are my my views on that, basically. And uh, do you have a second part to your question, or am I going insane? No, no, that was it. Okay. Uh, it yeah, yeah, just whether to implement deloads more often during sure. prep. Uh, then not yeah cool yeah I, I'm not sure about that I think it's probably at least at least as often as yeah. is a good idea and another I think decent consideration is um, how do you structure your calories around the deload my best answer is the following uh, you don't change them right uh, you don't lower your calories you don't raise them because you raise them that would help you with recovery but it would also soften you up a bit higher calories when you're not training much or doing much cardio sucks 
right? You'll get fatter and you'll have to reverse that. But if you don't change your calories and you just drop your training significantly, including cardio and weights, now you're probably back to a eucaloric state or something very close to that. Yeah. So, and if you're really dieted down and your calories are really low, you might have to raise your calories a little bit during a deload just to hit eucaloric. Now that's going to be from estimates, but I say the best estimate is probably just take out your training and your cardio, with the really tough stuff anyway. Whatever you're left with uh, is probably now a eucaloric calorie state or something pretty close to that. And uh, run that for a week. You almost certainly, you know, you'll look a little fuller at the end. You might even look better at the end of your deal than you looked before because you won't be depleted anymore. You might look a little bit softer within three days of training. I promise you, you'll look your all-time best. Yeah. Within three days of training after the deal. So people are like, oh my God, deal I, I look like shit. I haven't gotten any better. Trust me, it'll happen. Cool. And then on a related note, when talking about calories during kind of your cycles and in the deload period for going on a massing phase, would you change calories then? Kind of obviously when you're massing, your volume increases week to week could almost like be from say week one in your mesocycle to week four or five. They could be quite starkly different. You could almost have added maybe a third more volume. Would you increase calories then or would you keep them level and for the deload keep them level then as well because you're going to super compensate, make some gains? I don't think you make the kind of gains. The supercompensation that occurs probably doesn't require a whole lot of calories. It requires at least isocaloric, but probably not hypercaloric. What I would do is you may have an argument for raising calories through the weeks, absolutely, uh, on a mass phase. But really, you know, you have to do that anyway to maintain a certain constant rate of gain. So if you're looking at uh, gaining half a kilo a week, uh, you're going to have to eat more when you're training one and a half times more. Also, your metabolism is sped up from you being in a hypercaloric state for that long, so you're going to eat, eat even more than that. So absolutely, you're going to eat much more. On a, on a deload during a mass phase, you drop your calories by a ton because not only do you drop them because your training volume has dropped, but also you drop them because you're no longer hypertrophic stimulus mode and you just need to recover. So you need eucaloric again, right? Uh, another isocaloric week and that's going to be much much less calories. And the great thing about that is during the mass phase, it can really recharge your ability to eat a lot of food. Because when you deload and you don't smash food all the time, it can psychologically bring you back to wanting to eat a lot of food. Because eating a lot of food can get really tough. You know, it can get really annoying. And if you go back to eucaloric, it's just a similar effect for the diet. That's massively interesting because it's nothing I've ever actually read or heard that someone's quote yeah. talked about changing nutrition throughout the massing phase is generally you look at your weight on maybe a monthly basis, a bi-weekly basis, and adjust as per the weeks. But I've definitely noticed as I've gone through my massing mm -hmm. phase, I've had to add more and more calories, but I've never actually even thought about dropping them during a deload week. Uh, I actually tend to find my weight kind of in the week before deload tends to kind of come up a little bit, especially if I'm really sore, which mm -hmm. I guess is to do with the inflammation. And then during yep. the deload, it tends to kind of stabilize or come down with the kind of information coming down, but I tend to keep calories level. So if I'm getting fat during my deloads, I need to stop bringing those down because I don't want to get faster than I need yes. to. <laughs> yes, and, and remember, bring them down only to a eucaloric state. You don't want to go hypo. Easiest way to tell that, look, just uh, eat in s such an amount of food that doesn't make you hungry but doesn't make you stuffed. Yeah. So, so just real basics, kind of the TLDR version of this is uh, don't stuff yourself on the deload but don't starve yourself on a deal. Mm -hmm. On a cutting phase, starve yourself. On a massing phase, <laughs> stuff yourself. <laughs> but other than that, you uh, deload, nothing too crazy. It's a time to return to homeostasis in, in, in many ways, including with diet. That's interesting, man. Cool. Mark, do you want to talk about Oh, well, actually, I'll just ask the question because we're kind of coming to a point where we're like, we're at the end of the diet. We've talked about how we need to maybe deload more frequently, and we've talked about how and you touched on the transition outside of. So if we just finish on kind of maybe how that transition might go, and I know I've talked to you online about this, and you haven't had a lot of personal experience, and I've seen it recommended kind of having a maintenance period straight afterwards. You talked about one week maybe active recovery and then going into some high kind of massing. Uh, and I know you talked about going into that kind of higher volume massing kind of soon after your dieting phase and then maintaining and then going through again to kind of resensitize. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to touch on that at all, Mike, or have I kind of completely said that wrong? <laughs> no, you took it very right. 
Ben, I don't know how much I know about this particular part of the subject, to be completely honest, and um, uh, I need to know more. It's You've got some really conflicting things yeah. going on after the diet. You're very much um, in a position where you're uh, kind of, you're, you've been doing high volume training for so long that your body is kind of tired of responding to high volume training from the physiological side, from the training side. From the diet side, you're very much primed to grow because you've just been starving yourself for a long time and boy, is that anabolic machinery ready. So I can see multiple perspectives there being potentially correct. A maintenance phase with relatively low volumes uh, after cutting and to give yourself a break and then start massing, it's possible. That would require a maintenance phase calorically, which is incredibly difficult after a show. Um, I would say that most people can't pull that off. So for most people, I think you still have some anabolic machinery functioning, especially with the high levels of food after. So what I would say is right after the show, uh, maybe give folks a one-month-long mesocycle to eat, not whatever they want, but plenty. Have uh, some cheat meals here and there and train them with really crazy high volumes. I've never seen anyone overreach during this time. And then after that, maybe a maintenance phase and a mini cut phase, just uh, just taking the diet in a little bit and getting rid of some of the bloating that happened over the last month. And a maintenance phase with lower volumes of training. And this time you can even cut on slightly lower volumes of training as well because you're not going to lose a whole lot of muscle at that point. Just a, a month or so, maybe three weeks of cutting. And then you find yourself back in the position in which your body fat is similar to what it was after the show, so you're still very much primed to grow, but you've had a lower volume phase of several weeks preceding. Uh, and then you can start to build up your volume and go through the traditional massing phase. Um, as far as like people talk about reverse dieting, if your goal is to maintain your weight after a cutting phase and not gain any more weight, reverse dieting is great. If your goal is to get bigger, reverse dieting is contrary to what you want to do because you want to use the post-show rebound to get bigger. <laughs> You're in a very, very good state for muscle growth. You might as well do it uh, as opposed to rebounding your whole diet and then trying to inch up again the hard way massing where you're like, man, I still wish I was as hungry as I was post-show, but I'm not, so can't eat all this food. Um, so you know, I think that whichever way we want to go, we have to have our, our, our goals clear. Because some guys say, like, don't you reverse diet after a show? And I'm like, no, I start massing after a show. I'm like, why? Because I want to get bigger. And they're like, well, don't you get fatter? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm only massing, like, half a kilo a week. And they're like, oh, okay. I thought by massing you meant, like, eat everything. And I'm like, who yeah. the fuck said that? <laughs> yeah. There's never a good time to do that. Just like there's never a good time to eat nothing, you know? <laughs> so, so I think that depending on your goal, and most people want to get more muscular, I think it's a good idea to start massing right after a show and you'll get a, a mesocycle out of that, but after that mesocycle, it's time to do a low-volume cycle to let yourself recover from everything and then start massing again or start cutting again, depending on if you want to compete again later. I really like that approach and yeah. it makes sense to me because maybe, well, it depends on the person, but when you're coming into the show, generally people are kind of deloading, it's quite light, and they're actually normally urocaloric or kind of on maintenance calories going mm -hmm. into the show, or even in surplus life, they're trying to really go for it, mm -hmm. then they should feel maybe relatively good the week after. and Most people do. Not, yeah, not too trashed, so they can actually Absolutely. make progress there. Almost all of my clients ever have felt really, really good, and I personally have competed in bodybuilding a couple of times. I felt great the week after the show. You get, man, you get those cheeseburgers, and you can train for years <laughs> and not feel a thing, so, and the pumps are just out of this world. Right, that post the post show pumps are ridiculous. Like your skin is gonna blow up, and you're still <laughs> lean, so you look like a fucking cartoon character. Um, so that that's that's really good stuff. If you have someone who's psychologically strong enough, not super into eating, you know there are those weird people who just their food's just not a big part of their life. And after the show, you're like, okay, you guys want to go out to eat? And they're like, yeah, they have a slice of pizza. Woo, take some Instagram pictures. And the next day, they're like, ah, can I just eat my clean food? And what the hell's wrong with you? For those people, maybe a maintenance phase right there is great, and then just start having a mass. But then again, for those people, maybe you should have the mass right after a show, because if they don't want to eat after a show, they're sure as hell not going to want to eat a month later when their metabolism is adapted. So still some thought to do on that one. I'll be 
doing it with some of my clients uh, soon, so I'll be able to report and see how it goes because I've never done that myself um, because I've always done the maintaining afterwards. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Give it a shot. Just don't let them get too fat. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Mark, do you have anything else you want to cover? We've been around an hour, so let Mike go in. Uh, well, he's on a diet, so he can't go and enjoy much food. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. That's great. That's... Just yeah, remind I... me. I know. Um, no, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed that. It's re really interesting points regarding the... The deload uh, in a massing phase. Actually, I, I, I've got to say, I, uh, I would typically have kept calories around about the same. Um, so that was really cool to know. Um, and yeah, just uh, I've appreciated it. It's been great. Thanks so much for all the great questions, guys. And I definitely, well, actually. You can feel a bit better, Mike, because next week I am deloading, and normally I would have kept my calories high, whereas now I'm going to have to drop them down, so I'm a bit sad. But Let me know how it works. Maybe it's a disaster, and I was wrong altogether. <laughs> well, th this mass phase, when I've taken the principles I've learned from yourself, Mike, and from Renaissance Periodization, has been the most successful I've had ever. So I That's owe you great. a lot. Yeah. What did you do differently this one? Just a couple of what are, was a couple of things you did differently than you used to that you think you can attribute the success to? So the the major changes an assertive surplus. So rather than going for trying to tr somehow track a pound of body weight gain per month, I'm trying to track that over two weeks, which is what did you say? Gaintaining? That's your term, <laughs> right? Did you make that? Did you make that term up? Not me. I don't. I thought I heard it from you, Mike. So. <laughs> As I just I thought I heard it from you. That's just a great term. I like that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, not the gaintaining approach. So the assertive surplus, and then whereas in the past with my training I would have kind of just gone kind of hard all the time and then deloaded every kind of sixth week. Whereas now I'm really pushing volume and like specifying on my block kind of body parts that I'm going to push on and really mm -hmm. increase. Mm -hmm. And the amount of volume I'm doing this week. Is probably the most I've done like in my life for a very long time. And for myself, I know I'm I can take. I was always good at long distance running and things like that, so it kind of makes sense. I can do a lot of volume, and that's what's making me grow. And I think as a, someone more advanced, this sort of all these things that you talk about a lot are really kind of make make the yeah. biggest differences to people. That's awesome. I I've got to say I I also agree with that. Um, so this is. I am myself like master at the moment, and uh, it's the it's actually the first time I'm a little bit different to Steve. Um, I've spent a lot of years dieting because um, I was a lot heavier than I am right now, um, um, because of certain things. So this is the first time that I've properly introduced uh, an assertive surplus, um, and and properly look to, to increase volume week on week. So like typically before I'd have like a, a six week training block, pretty generic, um, looking to increase weight kind of every time I went in the gym, rather than structuring like progressive overload, utilizing um, set increases mm -hmm. and also specialization blocks. So rather than really, really hammering my whole body or upper whole upper body, I will look to progress like a certain part of the body for that uh, mesocycle and then like give that a kind of break and then do something else. So yeah, I found um, I found just like Steve, great success with that and then taking into account the, the maximum recoverable volume and um, yeah, so mate, you've really helped big time with, uh, with the gains over here. <laughs> Well, that's awesome, guys. That's my pleasure. That's the, yeah. only, the, only, the only real reason I say everything I do is to help people get, get jacked. Yeah. But, no, but not too jacked. You know, I still want to be the most jacked guy, so I tell you guys a, a little bit of the truth, but mostly it's bullshit, you know, just to give you a little taste. <laughs> that's a joke, by the way, for anyone listening. <coughs> Something else I want to just point out, I also put powerlifting way on the back burner. I was trying to do powerlifting and bodybuilding kind of simultaneously, and it was really conflicting. I wasn't really getting very strong. I wasn't really getting very big. Definitely put powerlifting away. Focused everything, all my attention on bodybuilding. Best results I've seen for a long time. I think that's probably one of the biggest differences with the assertive surplus. 
Specificity is king, man. Yeah. And all the stuff that I've, you know, ever said, I tried all that other stuff. And and maybe I tried it wrong and it didn't work. And maybe I'm still wrong and maybe we're all wrong. But man, you know, it, it's it gets down to when you start violating principles, you got to have because a lot of it's, it's been very fashionable now that Instagram and stuff, a lot of power, especially in the natural bodybuilding world, a lot of um, folks are are powerlifter bodybuilder combos. And that's a fine combo if you take distinct periods of the year to train more like a powerlifter and distinct periods of the year to train more like a bodybuilder. Simply meshing the two to get together gives you some of the best of both worlds and some of the worst of both worlds. So it's really, if you try to violate specificity and say you want to be the best powerlifter and bodybuilder you can be at the same time, that is not going to be possible. Mm. Um, people always try to point out the few individuals that could pull it off, and exceptions don't prove rules, and they don't disprove the rule. Um, Stan Efferding is a phenomenal powerlifter. Could you say that he was as good of a bodybuilder as he was a powerlifter? No. And Stan Efferding, from what I understand, had distinct phases of the training year where he was training for both. He didn't train for everything at the same time. I'm not even aware of any athletes that train for both at the same time. So it's uh, really, really cool that, that you you found that to be a great element of your training. I, when I found it to be a great element of my training was when I was so beat up from powerlifting that I couldn't properly do high-volume workouts. And then the other way around, when I was so fatigued from high-volume workouts that are necessary for bodybuilding that I couldn't hit PR lifts anymore, right? So that's when you end up at this conclusion, like, fuck, maybe I just better do one or another and just kind of alternate them, you know, at the same time or, you know, here and there. Trying to do, you know, people keep bringing this stuff up and trying to be really good at several sports at the same time is absolutely possible. Trying to be your best at several sports at the same time is impossible by the very principles of the matter. So, uh, really glad that uh, that you're on that. And you listen, if you if you get the powerlifting bug later, you can just take two months, do a strength meta cycle, do a peaking meta cycle, and you'll probably do really well. You know, uh, just if you mix the two together, shit, you get like it's like the best analogy I've had for that. It's a shitty analogy, but it's still funny. Um, you've got spaghetti and you've got chocolate cake. Spaghetti's bodybuilding, chocolate cake is powerlifting. <laughs> they're both they're both delicious, but you don't put them in a blender and mix them together. <laughs> that's fucking sick. So <laughs> now, if you really diet it down, you may still find that appetizing. Yeah. You know? like, <laughs> I, I, I've been watching their work, <clears throat> diet it down, and I see like a half of a hot dog. Someone dropped it on the street. And I'm like, Man, <laughs> is anyone around? <laughs> I'm glad I don't cheat on my diet on principle because if no one was around, you know what I'm saying, your boy would have been down on the in the, in the dirt eating a free half hot dog. <laughs> and people think that's a complete joke, but the Minnesota starvation study completely showed these crazy things yeah. happening, which yeah. is a whole other topic and subject. But uh, yeah, thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for coming on, covering these questions. And like I said, love to get you on again because we've had so many questions come through because people want to learn as much as they can from you. But we appreciate you've got a limited amount of time. So, yeah, we just want to make sure everyone finds Mike. And on Facebook, Mike gives a tell, search him, friend him. He puts out quality information regularly. And then Renaissance Periodization. And particularly, I want to recommend the ebooks that Mike produces through Renaissance Periodization. I think they're on the Juggernaut website as well. Is that right, Mike? Mm -hmm. They're on both. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So I'll put those all in the links below because if you want to learn more about this stuff, like you've heard MRV, it sounds cool. Learn from the best source possible. Yeah. Get the ebook. Learn how to diet effectively. Learn the principles of nutrition and training. Get these two books, and you'll be on your way. Uh, they're game changers. Awesome. For sure. Awesome. So cheers, guys. Everyone, take care, and uh, we'll be. Thanks for having me. So, cheers, Mike. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Bye.